I thought the question would be like, what is it you could literally do in real life? And I'm oh. my headcanon of you now is that you can do that. <laughs> uh, don't yeah. tell anyone. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're not quite doing that. We're reading the Discworld short story, The Sea and Little Fishes, so I'm just going to keep this joke short. And our guest is writer, comic, musician and author of the biography The Magic of Terry Pratchett, Mark Burrows. Welcome, Mark. Hi. It's very early here. Yes. 6am, just for the record. Um, Mark has gotten up very early to speak to us, so thank you as our first international guest as well. Hooray! Yes. <laughs> Hooray for colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> We're invading again. All jokes aside, we'd like to encourage you to learn about the history of invasion in Australia. We'd also like to acknowledge, as we do on our website, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the land on which Pratchat is produced pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples who are listening to the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you. You're our first guest from such a different time zone, <laughs> not just from another country. So thank you so much for joining us. It's okay. Like As we record, it's December the 21st. I don't know when this is going out, but there's something quite exciting about getting up this early, this close to Christmas, that makes it kind of okay. So I'm all right. You might spot the big man himself. Yeah, I actually just rewatched the first half of Hogfather uh, the other day, and now I'm just imagining that this is practice for you. <laughs> but Mark, you obviously you're a big Pratchett fan. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would hope so. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you've you've spent a long time researching and writing a book <laughs> that must have been quite a, a chore for you. Um, Hated every second, every second. <laughs> How did you discover Terry Pratchett? Uh, I got into Pratchett years ago, the early 1990s. I was about 13 or maybe 12, uh, which would have put it 92, 93, because I am substantially older than I look. And um, my mum and dad got lent a copy of uh, The Colour of Magic and Guards, Guards by a bloke down the pub, which I always think is delightfully <laughs> appropriate. And uh, <laughs> yes, I was and remain a complete nerd. And they knew that it was exactly my sense of humor. I was I was a comedy obsessive. I was like a I was into fantasy and sci-fi, and and you know I loved Blackadder and Monty Python and things like that. So my parents immediately went, "Oh, this is for Mark," uh, and they liked liked it too. But they passed them on to me. Uh, I think I read Color of Magic first, and then Guards Guards. Uh, what's brilliant about both of those books, if you're twelve is that both of them have swear words in the first, like, ten pages, which yes. was immediately hilarious. But mm. actually, so, but I, but I was completely hooked. Um, although I think the one that really hooked me was The Light Fantastic. I went from The Color of Magic Guard to Guards, Guards to The Light Fantastic. Uh, and uh, after that, it, I was kind of no looking back. Uh, I went to the library, 
went through the Pratchett shelves, discovered you can order books from other libraries, went through more of them. And at that point, uh, th- at that point, there were a lot, but there weren't that many. So it was possible to catch up fairly quickly. Uh, like there was like ten Pratchett novels out. I think the the Bromelia trilogy was out by that point, and about ten Discworld novels. So I was able to catch up fairly quickly. It's quite a daunting task to jump in these days, but at that point, I was I was early enough on the train. So yeah, I've never really looked back. I was the kind of fan that bought a book when it came out and the week it came out in Harback. I mean, I wouldn't say I am the world's biggest Discworld fan because I've met much bigger ones and I've never been that involved in like fandom, if that mm. makes sense. I mm. like, I've done a bit of internet arguing, but not as much as you might think. But, um, <laughs> but Pratchett's always been there. It's always been like, it's been one of those constants. So uh, yeah, that's my kind of journey. I'm just so curious about this bloke down the pub. Like, were they in, like, his, do you have a coat? And he's just like, oh, you want to get a look at some of these? I'd and it's just really like to books? think so. Right. Or is it like you from the future going back <laughs> and making sure that you get into the Terry Pratchett by, like, meeting your parents down the pub and handing them the books that you know you'll like? <laughs> oh, God, oh, no. I hope that's the case. Uh, now you've suggested it, that's, that obviously is the origin story of that. If you hadn't mentioned that, I'd never have done it and then we wouldn't have been here. And then we'd be trapped in an infinite loop that might destroy the universe. So um, let's make sure that happens. It could have been me. It could have been both. It could have been me in a long coat looking around and going, all right, Squire, can I interest you in some premium quality comic fantasy? Yeah. We've got your Douglas Adams. We've got your Robert Rankins. Bard recommend a Terry Pratchett for a start. <laughs> But you don't have to grow a beard. You get a beard with hooks on it, like that. You, that's, oh, you know, yes, you, yes. you do it properly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a brilliant origin story. That's one of my favorites, actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's. Can we? Well, look, we don't. Let's not rank our guests' origin stories. That seems <laughs> seems a bit. Rude. Okay, well, it, let's rank it against mine. It's better than mine. Is so. it a brilliant origin okay. story just because it's a charming tale, or because it involves me time traveling from the future and then? pushing comic fantasy novels onto my own parents in a pub in the early 1990s. Yeah, it's about the ultimate sort of movie about this, which is just going to be so extraordinarily meta. It's very good. And that that's how you become Ask Me About Terry Pratchett Man. <laughs> um, which yeah. I still can't quite get over that that is the website for your book <laughs> that you have written. That is quite extraordinary. Where did you get that idea? I was particularly proud of that. It's based on the thing from Going Postal. I was th- I was thinking about because I'm a horrible horrible capitalist in that I'm quite a good capitalist, which considering my personal politics is um, surprising. <laughs> but um, I think partly it's from being being in a band for so long because I'm in a band as well that like has fans and we put records out and stuff. Is that I'm you kind of learn how to market stuff to a fan base. So I was trying to think of little quirks and things I could give away for free and packages I could put together because like, the book came out on a small publisher and I just didn't really, it's not that I didn't trust them to do a good job. I just knew I could do a better one <laughs> of kind of directly reaching fans things. So I came I was trying to think of, of slogans I could put on badges uh, and then that immediately led in my brain to uh, ask me about pins. Which, <laughs> yes. so that, which that's a short jump to ask me about Terry Pratchett and like, I didn't want to be taking the piss with it because the book is not official. It's not an official biography. And mm. 
I've had to be very, very careful about not pissing off the Pratchett estate too much. So if I'd gone for terrypratchettbiography.com or something, I felt like I might have been stepping on some toes. So uh, actually just the idea of having asked me about Terry Pratchett, something I could put on badges and tote bags um, was the first thing. And also it kind of works really nicely because you've just read a book about Terry Pratchett. So now you know a lot of things. So it all kind of added up. And then I just thought it was quite, it was like a nice little charming idea. So I was particularly pleased with it. Thank you very much for noticing. Yeah, no, it was a stamp of approval. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good touch. Yes. We should talk a little bit about your book. We should say up front, neither of us have read it. Um, so we haven't, not that we don't intend to, it's just we haven't read, that's not what we're here to discuss it's okay. today. It's been in a general. year. I definitely want to, I'm keen to read it, but this is, you bring up an interesting point. It's, it's not official, but it is kind of allowed, I think is kind of how I've seen it. <laughs> that's sort of exactly. Described. Exactly right. It's allowed. It nearly wasn't allowed. Uh, like, Ooh. I because obviously, I, I the first thing you do when you're writing a biography of somebody is you try and get hold of as many people involved in that person's life as possible. And it became very clear very quickly that I wasn't going to get access to the main players because, firstly, Rob Wilkins is working on a biography of Terry Pratchett, like an official one that was partly written by Terry because the last thing he was doing before he died was working on his biography, on his autobiography, working on his memoir, and they were working on it together. So presumably there's a lot of material there already. Um, Rob was turning that into a big biography. So they were never going to endorse another biography. They're certainly not going to endorse one by some joker uh, publishing with a small publishing company who has never written a book before and no one has heard of. So I eventually found an email address that would go... I got nothing from the estate. I couldn't work out how to get through. I was I tried the Narrativia email address, lots of different things. Eventually, I one of my emails got through and, I, and my publisher received... Um, a terrifying email, basically, but not from the estate, from the from the estate's lawyers. Uh, it was that the typical Pratchett thing of the the people with uh, of the of the terrifying ser- terrifyingly serious men with expensive watches and very thin briefcases, and um, it basically said, "We hear you're writing this book. We'd really rather you didn't. We will not endorse it." And we really would like to read it before you publish it, please. Um, so, yeah, that was terrifying. But it, I think it's more of a standard thing. I think it just ha- that's just a thing that happens. So we had to be really careful. I knew I wasn't going to piss anybody off when they read it. Because I think what they were worried about is that it would be a cash-in. You know, an exploiting fans kind of deal. Either it would be a hatchet job which they couldn't control, or it would be a crappy hagiography that had no real kind of worth in of itself that was just mm. existing to set to flog books to Terry Pratchett fans. And I knew it wasn't going to be either of those things because I knew that there wasn't going to be much dirt to dig. I wasn't going to find out deep, dark secrets because I already knew that there probably wasn't anything like that. And I knew it was going to be affectionate because I was writing it. And also I knew hopefully it was going to be good it would have some sort of journalistic worth so i was relatively confident that it would be all right and then we sent it to them after i'd finished and what i heard unofficially um from a few people is that when somebody at the pratchett estate read it which means rob wilkins read it although uh officially that's not the case uh, but i'm pretty sure it was him basically the mood softened noticeably uh, because they knew that i'd sort of 
journalistically done a fairly good job with it, that it was affectionately written. Um, in fact, and they came back with a list of changes, not many, sort of 10, change, 10 changes, a couple of which were extremely useful because there were factual things I could never have found out. Like it was that actually this, it's not that is this. Um, some about some of which were kind of legal behind the scenes stuff, and the rest were points that forced me to clarify what I'd written. Like they'd rather I changed it, just took that bit out or changed it. But I was kind of like, I want to stand by that comment. So how do I make it? How do I make it stand in a book in a way that's unarguable? So there are a few bits that I went back to rewrite and actually were improved because the Pratchett estate had gone. Hang on a minute, we don't like that. Um, and I was able to kind of go. Well, here is a quote from Terry that confirms what I'm saying. And here is like some other facts. Here is a slight tweaking of the wording to make sure that everything uh, scans and makes sense. And and here's when it's opinion and when it's facts. And here's that facts triple referenced and i think that made it a better book so um in the end uh, it all kind of worked out and you know i got a tweet from rob who the only official acknowledgement of the book from the terry pratchett estate is one tweet from the terry and rob twitter account which was a reply to somebody saying i haven't read it this is not an official biography but we wish mark the best of luck and that's the only official response i've got that's quite nice really yeah unofficially mm. i got a quite a nice private message from rob just um, when somebody left me a bad review, which is ridiculous because it's only had good reviews except one person on Goodreads. And because of human nature and my brain, I obsessed about the one bad review I'd got on Goodreads as opposed mm-hmm. to the 74 and five star reviews I got, like one bad one. And um, I just sort of ranted about it on a, on a Pratchett board and Rob sent me a really nice DM saying don't worry about it. Like Terry got terrible reviews all the time. Calm down. It's fine. Yeah, Goodreads is hurtful. And basically you're right. It's human nature. You can get as much fair and balanced praise as you like, but it's the one person who says something cruel or nasty or just flippant. That that's the voice that you're going to hear. I think that's just human nature, which sucks, but a capitalistic fanboy. Google is your friend. One star. Yeah. Oh no, you've memorized it. Of course you have. Of course we, I all, have. we all can. <laughs> of course I have. Oh, uh, I, I can still quote for, quote from the two star review of my 2012 Edinburgh Fringe show, <laughs> which also got good reviews from everyone else. It's just one of those things. Well, I got I got trashed on an Enid Blyton forum one time, and I still think about that at least once a week. Because it's very unfair, and I'm also like not not a fan of Enid Blyton. So to have diehard fans getting quite mad at me over something that wasn't even the criticism is. Do you know the um the Enid Blyton Pratchett connection? I do not. Um, apart from the fact that there are several digs at Enid Blyton in various mm. yeah. Discworld novels, they both come from the same town. They both come from huh. Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire, which is a relatively small town. Enid Blyton died, I think, just before Terry was born, I think, roughly. But yeah, Enid Blyton is from is from Beaconsfield, so she would have been sort of in the background of his life, although I don't think he was very fond of her books. But yeah, Enid no, Blyton, G.K. Chesterton <laughs> and Terry Pratchett, all from the same really small town. Wow. Something in the water. I hope they've got a good library there. I've been there. Uh, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> 
It's okay. I, yeah. I, cause the, One star. The, the library was so important to Terry growing up. Like He worked there as a child. He was a Saturday boy from the age of like 10 or 11 at the, at the library. It was the only way he could get out as many books as he could because they wouldn't let him take out more than a couple of books at a time. So he got a job there so he could take out as many as he wanted. He claims, and the thing about things Terry Pratchett claims is they're not always true if they sound cool enough. Um, that at one <laughs> yes. point there was a drawer in the library for people who've taken books out. And there was another drawer in the library for books taken out by Terry Pratchett. He claims that they, at one point he had 142 books uh, on loan at the same time. So I went, there's a plaque outside the Beaconsfield Library that just commemorates the fact that, that he used to work there. Uh, so I, I went on a little pilgrimage. I wanted to see the town he grew up in and I tried to find what his address was. And I looked at his old school. So yeah, I, it was really useful, that sort of thing, for writing the book. Because when I talk about Beaconsfield Library, I can literally describe it. I can describe... Yeah. So when you... And it was really important to get those kind of things in. So there'd be like a time, a real sense of time and place. But yeah. anyway, that's my book, not not Seeing Little Fishes. <laughs> that's all right. I do, I do want to I, I ask you one factual question that you may know mm. the answer to. This is something that someone at a convention asked us, and we did not know the answer, which was, there's a story... And so probably it's not true, but there's a story that in an early convention visit to Melbourne, a bunch of fans convinced Terry Pratchett to go with them to a audience participation screening of the Blues Brothers at a cinema called the Valhalla in Melbourne. I think it was in Melbourne. It might have been in Sydney, but I think it was the Melbourne one. And that that gave him the idea to write soul music, or at least for some of the Blues Brothers gags in it. And I don't know if there's any truth to that. But uh, I, some a fan told me that story at, at a convention. Said they don't know if it's true, but they've heard that from several people. That never came up at any point in my research. I'd say I'm not saying that it isn't true. It's a good story. Yeah. Uh, although with Terry Pratchett stories, particularly if they originate from Terry Pratchett, often the good story isn't the real story um, because he preferred to tell a good story. Um, I'd not heard it, but it sounds plausible. I, it mm. doesn't sound like it's it, he was like he was of fandom he loved like he didn't yeah. consider himself to be like a focus of fandom he considered himself to be part of it so yeah. the so hanging out with fans is not an unusual thing for him to do it's not like a the rock star that descends from on high to mingle with the common people it's like it's it would be completely in character for because he liked hanging around with fans like he whenever there was a, a posh swanky discworld based party in london or a, a, a book launch that kind of thing he always insisted that there was a certain amount of fans that would go because he'd rather hang out with nerds than he yeah. than with um <laughs> than with people who work in publishing which had you know if you meet people work, who work in publishing is an extremely natural assumption to come to um <laughs> I always thought soul music was reverse engineered from the Kirsty McCall song, which I know aware is a completely different book, but um, the, there's that line in Kirsty McCall in a Kirsty McCall song. Uh, there's the guy who works down the chip shop, swears he's Elvis, and oh yeah, I always thought there's a guy in the, who works down the chip shop. I'd swear he's Elvish, which is a, literally a line in the book. It was one of those things where the whole plot was reverse engineered to get to that point, which would be a very <laughs> yeah. Terry move. Um, mm. Yeah, but, I can believe it. But yeah, well, I don't. Cool. I cannot confirm or deny that story, but I, I do think it sounds plausible, and I like it. I hope it's true. Well, me too. Yeah, me too. Maybe we'll find out one day. Probably not, but that's okay. But we are here to talk about some of his work. In particular, we're here to talk about 
the short story The Sea and Little Fishes, the third Discworld story published. Um, and I, it, it's weird because normally at this point in the podcast when we're about to start discussing, we read the blurb. But, of mm. course, there is no blurb for a short story. Um, there is a lovely preamble in um, A Blink of the Screen where he describes, you know, the sort of background behind it. And, and the thing that struck me is the first thing he says where, you know, he did not find writing short stories easy and he claims to have only written something like 15. And then, you know, now, of course, we have four volumes of his really early short <laughs> stories for children in which there must be something like 50 short stories or something now complete uh, if you list them all. Uh, so that that seems like a bit of a fib, um, but but I get. Well, what it he depends means. on if you count like short stories as completed works that you're happy with, or like all of the things that you've turned out, and you're like, mm, I don't know if that's quite right. And then you go back and you revise it, and then suddenly you've got a body of work. So maybe that's I don't know. Possibly he was quote he meant sort of since he'd become since he'd become a novelist yeah, because that he churned sense, out. Yeah a lot of short stories at the beginning of his career because that's what he did like for the newspaper mm. he worked for he would that's how he, he got wrote, into fiction right yeah for his first published fiction well actually no his first published published fiction was a short story in a sci-fi journal in the mid-60s when he was 14 um which is ridiculously precocious i've got a copy of it i tracked it down um uh, which isn't as like rich and satisfying an experience as you'd think because that story is fairly well is is a uh, widely available it's in a blink of the screen the the short story compilation but um it's nice to own it to own the it's it's called a magazine but it's more of a paperback book um but yeah so his first published work was a short story and then he started that like a year later he started a newspaper that year he got another short story published which has never been republished which is a serious quite dark science fiction story um, mm. um, I mean, it does sound like the sort of thing you'd write as a 15-year-old. Exactly. Uh, something that's very serious and dark, you know. It's called Night Dweller. Uh, it appeared in a um, in a science fiction magazine called New Worlds in 1965. And it's a, it's the only thing that has never been republished in English. Uh, it has in German, weirdly, but it's never been republished in English. And it's because it's the <laughs> only Terry Pratchett story I have ever read. And I've read some that, that barely anyone else has read because I went through all of the newspapers. Um, that has absolutely no jokes in it. It's yeah, a very wow. serious, ponderous kind of. There's hints of H.P. Lovecraft in it, but he wrote after that. He he was off writing short stories. That's what he did. He he wrote short stories weekly for for that newspaper, and then for other newspapers for coming on for five years. So there's certainly more than fifteen there. But the thing is, yeah. it's a very it's very telling of Pratchett liking to polish his anecdotes because he says he's only ever written fifteen short stories in the intro of a short story in a blink of the screen, a book which, which itself contains like what? <laughs> yeah, it's more than fifteen short stories. Twenty-five in there, stories. Yeah, yeah, cheeky, cheeky Pratchett, cheeky. But I do really love how he says, like, he titled it, I thought it also sounded like the kind of title you got on an award-winning story, <laughs> in which, to my eyes, it turned out to be entirely wrong, which I absolutely love. Because it does. It does sound like the sort of thing, like, a lofty short story would be called. But, yeah. Yeah. And based on a saying that he invented and doesn't appear in the story, which I love. Yeah. So, it, yeah. Usually I try and, you know, read up the, uh, you know, any annotations or or kind of, um, you know, theories behind all of the stuff that we discuss on the podcast. And of course, the short stories do not appear in the famous annotated Pratchett file. Um, and uh, they, they also the books don't after a certain point either. They stopped updating it before he stopped writing books. But um, 
I'm sure there would be notes about this one because I'm like, oh, there's a little reference there. There's a little reference here. Look at all this stuff. And and there isn't, uh, there's not a list of them, but they, there's a lot of, it's very rich. It's also quite long. Like it's not a short, short story. You got called a novelette in one of the things I looked up, which is also like not a, like it's not, it's not quite a novella. It's just a long short story. Yeah. I mean, which it's, is why it's, I chose it. <laughs> when you yeah. ask me which, which short story I'd like to talk about, I like, can we talk about the longest one, please? Yeah, yeah, and it's great. I loved it. Like, I hadn't read this one before, and I was really excited because I didn't realize it was going to be about Granny Weatherback. So I'm like, yes, give me more of her, please. So, it's a proper character piece, mm. which is what's most lovely about it. It actually really tells you about Nanny's character and Granny's character in a way that you wouldn't really. Like, there are other Discord short stories. Like, there's one called Theatre of Cruelty, which is a watch story that doesn't mm. really tell you anything. It's a clever little idea. It's got a central, good central gag at the heart of it, but it doesn't tell you anything about carrot or vimes. Whereas this tells you everything about Nanny and Granny. You could you you can extrapolate mm-hmm. a lot of their character from this this story without reading any of the others. It's a really rich bit of writing. Mm. Yeah. So shall we plunge straight into it? Let's get into the story. Like it basically starts off with like like another story does with an apple or several apples. Yes. I love this bit. I mean, look. I am on record on this podcast as saying that uh, as much as I admire and think Granny Weatherwax is wonderful, Nanny Og is my favorite of the witches. I I am okay with saying that and declaring it. And I love how, just as in many of the novels, this story is essentially told from her point of view. We get a lot of uh, and real insight into the way she thinks mostly about Granny, but also about other witches and the sort of way witchcraft works and a few really lovely little bits about her attitude and I love this opening sequence where she visits Granny to show her these apples that the local farmer has named after her and uh, and describes them as tasty, a bit wrinkled, but a damn good keeper, which is <laughs> such a good description of, of Nanny Og herself. And I assume they're red apples, like, you know, they're not... Well, because they're named after her rosy cheeks, yeah. they have to be. Yeah, and because there's a frequent description in some of the novels where they talk about her looking like um, a, a, a red apple, apple that's gone a bit overripe yeah. in the sun yeah um which is delightful you can just really see her in your mind it's such a great description but yeah i really love that yeah and um, what i really like about that that whole section is is that nanny knows exactly what she's doing and she's mm. doing mm. it on purpose she's been she's had an apple named after her and that is gonna get up granny's nose and that's brilliant like she knows she's doing it to wind her up because she knows she needs to be wound up and i think what you get from this story which kind of is a continuation of a journey that kind of begins in masquerade i think and then carries Mm. on through carpe jugulum um is that nanny og is a sort of masterful granny wrangler like yes um, which sounds like a tabloid headline (laughs) granny wrangler court loose Um, on the streets um but (laughs) She knows how to manipulate Granny. She knows what it is that she needs. She knows how to kind of push her around the board a little bit. And and I really, really like that. It's such a beautiful character note because their, their relationship is a very much... Later on, when the other witches turn up and they ask for Nanny's help, she actually kind of gets patronised a bit for being Granny's sidekick, for being this kind of... Almost like the kind of person that Magra actually is not the, mm. like you know the, the the wet hen 
why do you always stick up for her kind of thing? Why do you why, why are you always running around after her? And actually, you realize that it's Nanny that actually maybe has a lot of the power in their relationship. And it's such mm. a nice character touch. It's such a kind of it's one of those things that really elevates their relationship uh, out from this kind of yeah the idea of the 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 side the the sidekick and the powerful person. It's not like that at all. It's it's a much more mutual thing. And it's kind of echoed in the trials, I think, with the, how Granny uh, Granny always wins, as we find out, but Nanny is very content coming second, and that's kind of what their relationship is like. It looks like she's second fiddle or coming second best, but it's exactly where she wants to be because as she, there's, this, there's this really great section when they talk about, like, people congratulate. Like, it's a good thing to say you almost won. It's not a good thing to say you almost mm. lost. So it kind of, yeah. I thought that was quite a nice sort of echoing through the trials of their relationship in that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's it's so difficult to talk about this story and not talk about Carpe Jugulum. And then also people say that there's a lot of Hatful of Sky that's queued up in this. Although not sort of plot wise as much, just little details that are happening in the background of the story because it basically takes another character and plonks her into that environment. But I think there's a journey of Nanny Og's character that begins in Masquerade and kind of comes to a fruition in Carpe Jugulum. And this is a really good transition point in that journey because this is written just before he, write, he writes Carpe Jugulum. Yeah, it came out like um, only a few months before, about and, uh, four months before, three months before, something like that was published. Yeah, and thematically, it runs right into it. It works really, really well. There's that thing in Carpe Jugulum of Nanny finding that she suddenly has to be pulled into the crone position. Like she's no longer the mother and now she's the now she's the crone. And yeah. there's that whole kind of um not at my time of life. Like kind of, I yeah. I'm not, like it's I'm too old for this shit kind of yeah. deal. <laughs> yeah. And and it's because she doesn't want to be in the spotlight. Which is weird because in terms of her family, she's very much in the spotlight. But it's kind of like she doesn't want that to be officially acknowledged as the mm. important one. She doesn't want to be known as the powerful one. She'd rather be kind of the power behind the throne. And everyone knows Esme Weatherwax is the most powerful witch in the world. But Pratchett believed, and I, I checked this, there's a, a really great book called The Art of Discworld, which is a collection of Paul Kidby's work. But um, the notes in it are really good because it's actually um, as much worth getting for terry's notes about each character i think i've got that one actually yeah he says that deep down he believes nanny og to be the more powerful mm. Mm. yeah and in weird sisters there are a couple of moments where i feel like he's hinting at that mm. uh like when they're doing the big spell to bring you know lanka forward through time there's a couple of little things he says in that sequence in particular that made me feel like he was acknowledging that yeah, what Terry said was, uh, uh, I've always suspected that Nanny is deep down the most powerful of the witches and part of her charm lies in the way that she prevents people from finding this out. Yeah. Um, and it's, <laughs> yeah. and you, you hear that in, it, that, that's in Seeing Little Fishes. You can hear it, it when Mrs. Earwig says, like, I'm not saying the woman isn't naturally talent. And Nanny's reply is, well, she has some natural talent, yeah, but n- not as much as you think and she really makes it work. There's the sense that mm. Nanny is the natural witch. Nanny is the one that has the immediate access to, to the magic and to knowing how that works but granny is that thing of having somebody who doesn't have it's almost like nanny has been the one that was born into money and granny is the one that is the self-made millionaire except yeah. none mm. of them have any money because they don't need it but that's that <laughs> yeah but granny has had to work much much harder and that means her power isn't coming from this sort of innate ability it's coming from someone who's practiced and practiced and practiced whose iron will has made them the best at what they do 
she's also got perhaps a bit more to prove, both to herself and to the people around her, because mm. Nanny's got her family and seems quite content with everything. But, I mean, Esme is always fighting off the potential for evil in mm. her. Like, it seems like she's always suppressing part of herself in that way. And I agree, like, she, like, they do say it bluntly in the story, like, she hasn't got as much natural talent as Nanny, so she has to work harder and has to prove that she's worthy of her spot, in my opinion. So that's probably something that drives her. Plus, it's the only thing she has, whereas Nanny's got a very rich tapestry of things going on in her life, family, friends, village, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and in her youth, quite a lot of other stuff as well. <laughs> um, whereas Granny, only this the whole time. Mm. So, yeah. and so in some ways she's a lot more fragile and more le- more loosely tethered to the world than, say, Nanny is. Yeah, mm. Granny's not a happy person. And that's that seems no. obvious that she's quite a sour person. But it's you, when you really think about the character that he created, she's not a happy person. She doesn't have that. You know, we we find the great love of her life was left in her youth and never returned to. She's never had a romantic relationship. She's got basically two friends and a frosty relationship with everyone else that she knows. She's feared and admired rather than liked. Uh, that's that that's a hard place to be and. It's not this story that has this quote, but I can't remember which, which one it is, but there is a quote in one of the books, just something like, the price of being the best is that you have to be the best. Uh, like yeah. The reward for being the best is is to continually prove that you're the best. And I think in Seeing Little Fishes, there's a quote, something like, after a lifetime of hard work and self-reserve, you find that your only reward has been to have worked hard and reserved yourself, or something along those lines. And mm. so you kind yeah. of... That's, that's why I think Nanny needs to constantly push and prickle at granny to keep her active to keep her to stop her from dwelling on the fact that actually she's a lonely old woman who lives by herself and who people demand things of and doesn't really have that much else yeah and i find that like a really beautiful bit of characterization and it's one of those bits of characterization that there's so much more going on than people tend to think if they're dismissive of pratchett and this is a really good example of that she was one of Terry's first really successful characters. Uh, if yeah. you read his early work, the characterizations aren't very good. Like the stories yeah. are fine, but if mm. you read Carpet People, Dark Side of the Sun, and Strata, like the characters aren't great in those books. The books work, but the characters aren't very richly drawn. And then you get Rincewind, his first proper character, who is the first one that really clicks. And then the next one is Granny Weatherwax, and. It's because he creates somebody who is a little bit damaged. Even in Equal Rights, which isn't the definitive version of Granny. Even in that book, she's still the same thing. She's still the yeah. old woman that lives in the woods and everyone is a little bit afraid of, who doesn't have anybody and all she has is her power. And that is really, really interesting. And I think he develops that and develops it and develops it until he gets a copy jugulum, which is the point where he, ha- where he stops developing Granny because there's nowhere else for her to go and she becomes the background of other people's stories after that yeah so it's interesting in this story basically they introduce the fact that every year there are witch trials and that granny always wins and they've signposted it early on in this that it's coming up real soon the bonfire is kind of the heart of the year and then after the whole apples incident nanny finds that she's being visited by three witches who are here to try and get her to persuade not to participate because they want more girls to take part because they're interested in witchcraft and no one wants to if they know they're going to lose. 
And so basically they all set out to Granny's cottage, um, Nanny sort of to be like, I'll hold her back for when she like comes at you for trying to suggest she doesn't yeah. take part. <laughs> and so here's, shall we talk about Mrs. Earwig, who is written so well, I think. I just, it just oozed disdain, but I had such a <laughs> grasp of who she was. Oh yeah. Immediately. Like she's the, she's the church lady with the flowers. She's the, like the whole like what is it the marshmallow on the outside and the steel on the inside yeah. like you know exactly who she is and you could point to like five people you've met in your life who are that person it was like i mean i grew up in in country towns in australia and most of the people in the cwa the uh, country women's association a venerable um <laughs> institution in this country but um, you're saying that so that they don't come for you well uh, no because i i genuinely admire them and they're, and they're great but there are always a few women who are on the fringes of that and they're not actually usually the ones who run things at the cwa because the cwa is pretty on the ball about this sort of thing but there are always a few uh and more so when you go to it really reminded me i lived in juni for a while which is a tiny little town near wagga wagga and uh, we went to the local show like an agricultural show and the women who would win all the prizes in the jam making competition and who would judge the the cake baking, which we'll come back to a little later in the story. Yeah, exactly. Some of them were lettuce earwigs and it was great to see her on the page. And before we move on too far, I do also just want to acknowledge the very pratchety way in which he has flipped the idea of what a witch trial is. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's run by the witches to see which one's the best witch, not to see if someone is a witch, which I just... But there yeah, still so has great. to be a bonfire. It's not a witch trial yeah. if yeah. there's not a bonfire. That's such a beautiful touch. Oh, and they have the, the cursing, they, which they don't talk <laughs> about a lot, but they, it comes back in. Anyway, but yes, yeah, so they've gone up to the, the cottage after having presented Nanny with this idea that, yeah, we, we don't it's want definitely to definitely come it. from Mrs. Earwig. Like, that's, mm. it's, the others are sort of going along with it because she's got one of those personalities that's like, wouldn't it be nice if we did this? I think we, we, we should. Anyway, so we're going to go do that now, aren't we? And it's just, it's taken as, as done and you don't want to get on her bad side. Otherwise, you get the last cup of tea. Um, <laughs> I like the fact yeah. that, that Nanny is going along partly to, because she, I think partly because she knows that she has to, uh, be there. With the fire extinguisher, essentially. But I think yes. mostly she's gone because she wants to watch. <laughs> like, mm. She wants to watch what oh, she's happens. She's that popcorn gif. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Sitting in the comments. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah, this yeah. is going to be good. One of the things that's recurring, and it first happens when the when the other three witches come to visit Nanny, is that this idea that Nanny is the person who you think would swear, but mm. doesn't. And there's a bit where she nearly swears at them and then she doesn't say any swear words. And then later on it explicitly says, yeah, she looks like a lady who would swear, but she doesn't actually. And most witches won't because they're very careful about what they say because <laughs> the words might do something that they didn't expect. And then that's the last thing that happens basically before she says, okay, I'll go with you. And they go up to the cottage where Granny is is very nice to them. But the first thing Mrs. Earwig does is call her Miss Weatherwax. Yeah, it's such... <laughs> like, oh, it's brilliant. It's such a slam. Like, straight away. Knives and, out immediately. Yeah. And it's never happened to Granny before because usually people call her Mrs. And she recorrects them and says Mistress. Uh, and this is the first time somebody's gone with Miss. And Nanny makes the point that Granny doesn't invite them in and offer them a cup of tea which is almost as insulting as calling an unmarried old woman miss. Which yeah. Is brilliant. Uh, it's yeah. such, it, it's a proper kind of uh, shots fired moment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And we've all, I don't know, like maybe I'm just, just extrapolating my experience, but we've all experienced someone who's done just such like a blunt mm. power move, like a blatant power move. 
from the outset and you're like, oh, I know what you're doing and I hate it, but we're going to play this game, aren't we? And it's just, and she does. Like that, and there's that whole like tension over whether or not she's going to offer them tea, like told through, <laughs> through Nanny's eyes. Yeah, I love that. It's like, if she doesn't, that's going to, oh, that's, that's going to say something. But she brings them in and there was that whole thing about the less you like the person, the better the quality of yes. biscuits, the nicer you are. <laughs> yes, yes. Very true to life. I feel like we should talk a little bit more about Let Us See a Wig because, you know, this is her first appearance. There's so many weird things about her that kind of all add up to make her who she is. Like we learn that she's married an ex-wizard, that she's got lots of money, so she buys all the fanciest witching stuff. And there's sort of, when we're first meeting her and, and hearing what Nanny thinks of her, it seems like maybe she's not a great witch because she's kind of just doing it. And what's the, it's the, she does witchcraft in the way that other wealthy women might do needlepoint, like not because mm. they need to, but because they need something to do to keep them busy. But then as it goes on, you, you know, Nanny does kind of acknowledge that well, she's actually a pretty good witch and she still is a witch. She's still made of steel on the inside. We just don't like her because <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's terrible. So to draw a sort of like comparison, and I'm going to mix a few different things here. The way it's written about, like her marrying an ex-wizard, they're like, that's okay because if you do, he just has to stop being a wizard. So she's basically like lured a priest away from the priesthood, <laughs> but he's got a suspicious amount of gold as well. So he's like a corrupt priest <laughs> slash wizard. And so now she's got a lot of money. And the way I sort of viewed this to, to understand it in round world terms is let's imagine witches as like a book club, for example, right? So there's going to be the one to like granny who – read the book cover to cover, made extensive notes, understands it, perhaps read up about the author as well. You got Nanny who like skimmed through it, maybe got her daughter-in-law to explain it to her, there for the wine and the cheese, but but understands like how the book works. Like if you're talk, having a discussion about it, she can get to the core themes. Like she understands it, even if she hasn't read every word. And then you'll have Lettuce Earwig who will have read the book in a perfunctory fashion, thinks she really understands it, and goes in saying, this is what it's about, this is what it is, and everyone else will just fall into line with my opinion about it. We're not actually having a discussion. This is what the book is. So she falls in the mediocre, in the middle of the range, but thinks she doesn't. That's that's how I sort of viewed their roles See, in comparison I, to each other. I kind of disagree. I think Ooh. someone like Magrat would have read the book cover to cover, made all the notes and being diligent about it. And you're right, Nanny would have had it explained to her or got someone else to read it. And you're right about Mrs. Airwick. She would have, she would do exactly that. Granny wouldn't have written, have read it at all. She'd have read the blurb, dis, um, decided she disagreed fundamentally with the premise and not bothered with anything else. <laughs> she can't be having with that sort of nonsense. Exactly. Uh, and then she would have argued about, and then, and then would have obstinately argued every single point uh, that anyone else made going, <laughs> yes. going, no, I don't see why you have to do it. I don't see why anyone would act like that. That seems ridiculous. Why would you do that? That's, uh, which is how she treats all arts, how she's at the opera, how she's at the theatre. She would know she was right, but wouldn't seem like, feel like reading the book was particularly important. She wouldn't read the book. She'd read the author. Yeah. Yeah, headology of the author. Uh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I, uh, like I would absolutely love to read a book of them doing a book club. Actually, <laughs> it's that's it's such a like a tantalizing prospect, isn't it? I I yeah. really like your analogy of the book club, Liz, but I do have to say the other thing that uh, Mrs. Earwig made me think of was like, you know, a prime like the woman who I who who probably did it in like an episode of Midsummer Murders or something. <laughs> like, you know, she's she's got the weirdly rich husband. 
who we don't see who possibly has been killed by her like it i don't know i got that vibe off her like she's oh, she would have gotten it. someone else to do the killing though oh yeah she just benefit yeah yeah most likely but uh yeah it does not go well when they go to tell granny uh maybe you shouldn't do this i mean but it goes not well in maybe not the way you expect because she is quite withering but it gets to the point where mrs Ewig basically straight up says to her you you're so mean to everyone all the time couldn't hurt you to be nice like nanny <laughs> um although she refers to her as our sister githa which i think is a bit <laughs> much like they're not on that sort of first name terms uh apart I, from the fact that all witches are i guess but she calls her esmeralda and esme at some point as well which is uh yes. which is not something she allows people to do yeah and I, I also think describing somebody as like my sister witch again is something that feels like it's this slightly new age kind of i've bought into the idea of of witchcraft and it's a sisterhood and it's a mystical coven of like-minded sisters which is yeah. never how granny sees witchcraft and and it's, <laughs> no. it's 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 how the the younger witches see it as well and but the one thing that granny would never ever do is romanticize witchcraft and it's yeah. such a stark difference, but she would never describe anyone as, as a sister witch. I don't know if you've seen Buffy, but there's that scene in season four where Willow um, goes to her university Wiccan circle for the first time. And they also do like a blessing and then they go, OK, so who's bringing what to the bake sale? And <laughs> after a while, she eventually goes, oh, I thought we'd do like spells or something. And then one of them sort of like nervous, confidently is like, oh, and then maybe we'll all, uh, I don't know. Um, get out our broomsticks and fly around on our broomsticks and it kind of had that kind of vibe to me like they <laughs> they'd all learned their witchcraft from a book and were reading like phoning it in but not really getting what it's actually about the fundamental idea of discworld witchcraft comes from that passage at the very beginning of weird sisters where it's like the first line in weird sisters properly anyway after the seat's been set where it's the three witches essentially ripped from Macbeth round the cauldron when shall we three meet again well I can do next Tuesday and it's yeah and that's exactly what this is it's it it's the real witch witches don't need to shriek when shall we three meet again like they just check their diary and that's that's what grant the difference between granny and Mrs. Irwick is that granny will would never call somebody her sister um because to her the relationship between them is implicit and it's very important to her that everyone knows the relationship is implicit and knows their place in that pecking order as well she doesn't mm. see them as an equal uh, <laughs> as equal sisters no and no. I, I think that's interesting too because this story kind of insinuates that or, or basically says straight up that no witches do in previous books and i think again this is in weird sisters where that not known for being gregarious and granny weatherwax was the greatest of the leaders they didn't have you know that there's there is a pecking order that everybody's aware of but they pretend that they're you know every witch is on their own whereas here they talk about the witch trials as one of the ways in which witches will sort of up themselves in the hierarchy uh and also you know dead witches boots you know when the more senior witch dies you go to the funeral yeah. then you go home thinking well i've moved up a spot and it's just such a great insight into the wider world of witchcraft that came before, you know, that really opens up in the Tiffany Aching books. It's really wonderful to see that. So we've got Nanny coming back after Granny's been told she needs to be a bit more nice. And they have that sort of dread-filled conversation mm. where Granny just keeps saying <laughs> nice in, in scary ways. Yeah. And can see that something's coming. And then it sort of cuts and 
Granny's being nice. Yeah, terrifyingly nice. Like blessing people and uh, bringing them things and giving them advice. Uh, which, you know, she does all those things normally, but usually mm. in a very brutal, this is good for you kind of way. It's interesting, actually, because the way that Granny does things is kind of a bit how one of the other witches, and I've forgotten which one it is, but it's one of the other two uh, witches who comes to see Nanny is described. Like she says that Gamma, what's her name? Not the one who hardly Beavis. does anything in the book. <laughs> uh, yeah, Beavis, yeah, Gamma in, Beavis in the story. Yeah. as She describes her as being a bit too educated and who would do good things for you but even if doing a good thing for you wasn't what would do you good i think such a good passage but yeah and yet that is also kind of exactly what granny is now doing Mm. whereas previously she'd do and there's a lot of great little lines in this several times they sort of talk about the difference between what you need and what you want and what's good for you and what what you think will be good and she yeah she does (laughs) she just goes around doing these good deeds with like viciousness (laughs) but but like (laughs) It's not vicious. Like, she's mm. genuinely being nice, but no one can grok that. They're like, what do you mean Granny Weatherwax is being <laughs> nice to me? Surely that means the universe is about to end and I'm going to die. And every one of those, I think you get two or three of those little scenes. And then some of the people from the village are like, we're going to need to talk to Nanny about this. So they sneak off to find her at her secret still in the woods, which is many times referenced. Although I think in one of the early books, don't they claim that Granny's the one with the secret still? I think that's an equal rights. And then that's an equal rights, yeah, when things aren't quite settled yeah. yet. And then Pratchett realizes, no, hang on, Nanny would be the one with the still, <laughs> which I think makes much more sense. And there's great imagery of like everyone pretending they don't know the stills there, so <laughs> yeah. they're bumbling around in the hedges around the edges. And then when she dashes off to go find Granny, the guy's like, "Oh, do you want me to put out the fire of the of the walk you were doing?" And yeah. It's just. Because actually, so this works with what I was saying earlier, is that the people that know Nanny Og are as scared of Nanny Og as they are of Granny. It's just in a different way. It just manifests differently. But they're still scared of her. Like, there's that thing as the king pretends he doesn't know that the still's there and gets a barrel of something nice every mm. uh, every Hogs Watcher said, thank you for not asking for the taxes so that Nanny doesn't have to refuse to pay them. <laughs> Which is, like, it's lovely. Yeah. But they all know that actually you don't cross Nanny Og. Nanny Og is a force to be reckoned with in her own right. Oh yeah, definitely. It's interesting that in this story, because it's so much about witches with each other, that that becomes very background. Like normally, you know, you have the three witches of the story, whichever three it happens to be, and their relation to other people is they all have that power dynamic in their own ways. Arguably less so Margaret, but, you know, then she becomes queen and it's it's very different again. But in this, because it's all about witches' hierarchy, there's a lot more argy-bargy. I mean, there's no doubt throughout the whole story. We're all, we're all sure that Granny is going to come out on top mm. one way or another. But at the same time, you're like, but how does Nanny relate to these other witches? Like, we know what she's like with regular people. You know, how does she get along? I mean, they all her mates. And, and then, you know, when she meets one at the witch trial and she has that internal card come up out of her little Rolodex <laughs> of her mind kind of deal. And she's like, oh, yeah, you. I've got you pegged. I know who you are. You get the feeling that that's her behaving like other witches. Mm. Like that there's a certain sort of standard witchiness that they all have. But then they have their own personalities layered on top. Bit like, you know, that great line early on when the witches come to visit her and it says like, there's nothing like a uniform for displaying your personality. Um <laughs> They all have those little different bits, which was, yeah, which was great. But yeah, the scene where she goes to see Granny and says, what are you doing? And she's not only like rummaging around, like she's going through her old clothes, but she picks up the the pink dress. (laughs) 
The Glinda dress. Oh my God, Brilliant. you can't think of anything less Granny Weatherwax in your life. And she's described as a pink shape for the rest of the book. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I thought when I was reading it, because I was like, did she like put a spell on herself or did she get cursed by lettuce to actually be nice or something? Because I, w- I was in two minds about that for a while. I knew she'd come out on top. Mm. But for a while, I was like, oh, is it going to be like a double bluff where she's not actually doing a thing and she's actually like been cursed into being nice? And the thing that got me on that was how they keep describing her table throughout the book and it's spotless and bleached and really clean but when she makes all those horrible cakes and jam her table is just chaos it's covered in bunting and cooking stuff and i was like oh is this is she actually like properly Uh properly cursed so i for me i had that um that it left me guessing, which I thought was really good because I, I I pride myself on being able to figure out like the twists ahead of time, and I wasn't convinced either way in this one. So yeah, yeah, it's subtle. I n- it never occurred to me that Granny ever had anything but the upper hand, and maybe that's because I've been Granny Weatherwaxed. Maybe I'm falling for her. Uh, <laughs> I'm falling for the idea for the, the idea she projects into the world that she is impenetrable. But I also don't think there is. Aside from Nanny Og, who headologies her, who like you know pushes her around in a very subtle, manipulative way, but um, as her mm. friend, I don't think there's another witch in the world that could do that to her. That would be powerful enough, or I think even would dare. I think she'd know and she'd fight and she'd hit back. Yeah, but I thought like possibly she'd done it to herself mm. as like a brief window of things to try it out to be like oh well maybe I should like maybe she got real down she's like okay well let's try it 24 hours of being nice and cursed herself to actually believe uh. it like for that was a thread that I had as well for a while because she kept saying nice in that scene and she might have been plotting something but she might not have been plotting what we thought she was because she does have that sort of darkness and down on herselfness to the edge edges so i thought perhaps that was going to come into this short story I don't know. yeah i like that idea that it could have been a curse but i think also this story and also some of the other books they kind of really as much as i want to believe that that nanny is the only one who has any control over her i think she doesn't really i think you know it's more that granny allows that Mm. You know, and it, and in this one, there's that moment where Nanny is saying, you've got that smile on your face, like that time you did this horrible thing and this time you did this horrible thing, <laughs> this time you did that horrible thing to people who deserved it. And then there was that time that that avalanche fell on what's his name's house. And, <laughs> I love that. And, <laughs> and he says like, Nanny was sure that was pretty sure that was just natural causes and was sure that Granny knew that, that she suspected that. But Granny still does that moment where she's like, I'm sure you might think that, but I couldn't possibly comment yeah. kind of reply. I think the, um, the quote is something like the, the conflict between personal pride and respect for the truth or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just made me sort of really think again, like, yes, yeah, Granny needs Nanny as that, mm. as that to, to keep her in check. Uh, and so she allows that. And, mm. I, and I don't think there's... But then if it came down to it where Nanny pushed her in a way she didn't want to go... Oh, yeah, she would. That would be interesting. And I, yeah, yeah I, I, I kind of, I would, I think I would have liked to see that as much as it would have made me very sad. Like, you know, like your favorite aunts are fighting each other, you know, and you don't want that. Um, I think it would have been fascinating to see that happen because I don't think it ever really quite comes to that in any of the books. Like they have arguments and blow ups, but mm. in the end, Granny always realizes that Nanny is probably right or vice versa, you know, 
and they work. Oh, but there is that moment in this thing where um, Nanny, for a second, thinks that she's done something yes. to her grandson. Oh, yeah, that's and, and you get awful. a glimpse of where it could go. Yeah, but then it's quickly like because I I was like, oh no, like what's going to happen? So yeah, I think that was a really good quick jab. Yeah, it's a us. it's almost a horrible piece of writing, and that it's a really good piece of writing. Um, that moment where you feel Nanny's sudden stab of fear and she refers back to it later um, yeah. and Granny knows and you can tell it breaks Granny's heart a little bit that they think that ultimately she would do anything to hurt a child uh, even one as irritating as Pusey Hug yeah. <laughs> the stickiest <laughs> Pusey Hug Stick, oh. the stickiest child of all yeah because what happens is you know Nanny does go to see Granny and says people complaining you're being nice to them and i love when that when the, actually when the men from the village complain to nanny she's like i don't really see the problem here yeah because like, on paper she it blessed all your cow uh she told you where to find water what's your issue and then they're like you put too much of the stuff on the yeah. dog and it's your fault it's extraordinarily hairy yeah like. you should have read the instructions which were there but yeah she goes to her and says look you're kind of unsettling people and now you're unsettling me because you want to wear pink and you're making things and she decides that she's going to go to the witch trials but just help out not participate so she bakes a bunch of these horrendous cakes which are worse than like they're not even good as dwarf bread by the sound of it they're just horrible um, the jam <laughs> and the jam, which which they what do they describe it as like solidified purple lava, such a good. <laughs> and then someone writes a little sign later on to say, um, "Mrs. Earwig it's does." Mrs. Earwig. Oh, that's right. Right, win three dollars if you can pull the spoon out. So good. Which is actually yeah. is one of those things that shows that she's a lot sharper than initially made out. That's actually yeah. that's not just like the superficial power move of calling Granny Miss. That's actually a very smart move. That's a proper. That's something that a witch would do. And yeah. it's a, it's one of those little hints that comes back when the character reappears later that there's more to her than the kind of stuck up, awful busybody that you assume she is to begin with. Mm. Mm. Yeah, she's got layers, and like this is, you know, you were talking like an onion. Yeah, like, mm. oh god, <laughs> like got to foreshadow the onions. Uh, but yeah, like you were saying, Mark earlier, you know, his early characterizations are not great they're very they're quite shallow in some of those really early books and i mean those characters are still a lot of fun but there's not much to them whereas now at this stage in his writing every character yeah so rich yeah they've all got lots of going on yeah it's great you know nanny goes along to the trials because she wants to see what's going to happen and all the witches there are like and she's nanny's Granny's here. Look at these cakes. Look at this jam. They give her a job to do, which is to run the lucky dip. And everyone's like, are you sure? Like, she's got a bit of a... <laughs> uh, her sense of humor's not quite right. And it's not very popular because everyone's... A, and basically, the whole thing proceeds with this shadow of what is Granny Weatherwax going to do over it? And everybody's freaking out a little bit. Although, you know, the witches are obviously they don't want to show it. And it builds and builds and builds and builds. Until you get that moment we were just talking about where they hear Pusey screaming about something and he's at the, uh, he's at the lucky dip and Nanny runs over and gets halfway through the sentence. What have you done to? And then she herself goes, what am I thinking? Like mm. she almost immediately is like, you wouldn't do anything to my, gr-. like it's, it's really like it is an awful moment. You're absolutely right. But at the same time, it's awful for Nanny as mm. well. Because you can see that she realizes that this isn't right and she shouldn't think that. Do you think that's part of Granny's plan? Like, I think, I mean, obviously she's making everyone fill up their, their heads. This is her headology at work thinking, what awful thing is Granny going to do? 
and even Nanny is lured into it, even though you would think she would know better, but it even affects her. And is that part of her plan, or do you think Granny's accidentally gone a bit too far? No, I think she's gone too far at that point. I think that surprises her. I think it's her being a victim of her own success. She's too effective at being terrifying. What she's done is made the event. She's been asked to step out to give other people a chance. So she's made the event entirely all about her. Like, it's all anyone thinks about. It's all anyone can talk about. But because of that, um, because of her reputation, maybe it's also because witches all know that there's that creeping feel that you could go to the dark and that you, you're yeah. on the knife edge between light and dark. It's mentioned in later books, but I think it's implied a little bit here, is the reason that witches get together is to check in on each other and make sure that they've not gone bad and keep yeah. each other on the straight and narrow a little bit, which is, like you said, Nanny and Granny's relationship. And I think, um, so I think there's a suspicion that she could flip, she could go, and they all think that, and I don't think Granny quite, maybe quite doesn't realise they'd accept that so readily. And I, I think yeah. that there's a sense that she is a little bit hurt that um, she thinks Nanny at least would would genuinely believe that she would do anything to hurt a child for no reason. And it is, I, I think also it's really one of the ways it's really effective is that Nanny's sort of attitude really turns very quickly because only a few lines before she's defending Granny. And then Pusey cries out. She goes over to him and says, what have you done to him? And she realizes he's just complaining because he didn't get what he wanted in the lucky dip. And again, the lucky dip is something from my child. Like we, we at the, <laughs> we, we'd have like a, a, was it full of bran though? Cause I thought it was like, I, I was imagining it as porridge and I was like, oh, sticky. Like no, children I don't... Like reaching into this vat of porridge. It was always sawdust at the fates I went to when I was a kid. It was always full of sawdust. I, I, I think it's meant to be like just grain, just like dry grain. Ours wasn't quite so traditional. Like we had little envelopes or little packets and you just get to, you know, they'd be in a big bucket or something and you just get to take one and then you'd open it and see what you got inside. Um, you didn't actually have to stick your hand in anything, which I'm kind of disappointed about now. No, we had, like. we had the stick your hand in a bit. We, Cause like, I, these, this, this kind of village fate sort of deal is like very familiar. Cause I grew up in the English countryside. Mm. I grew up in a very similar town to where. Terry grew up very similar kind of size and nature of town, so the, the, I was very familiar with this sort of thing. And yeah, those kind, all those games they describe—they're all the classic stuff you'd have. And yeah, we, mm. we you would have a lucky dip, and it would be it basically somebody would buy a bin, just and fill a bin full of sawdust, and in the sawdust would be loads of little presents, and you'd just go and take out whatever you got. It's a yeah. bit of a rubbish game when you think about it. It is. I mean, look, it's gambling for kids. And gambling for kids is always on an edge, isn't it? And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, pick a random thing, buy a pack of Pokemon cards. Like, it's never, it's never great. It's don't never want great. a dolly, want a soldier. Yeah, exactly. I don't want a Pikachu. Uh, everyone wants a Pikachu. Why would you not want a Pikachu? No, most people do want a Pikachu. It's true. But, yeah, as a result of that moment, the other witches are like, maybe it's best if you just leave. You mm. just leave, Granny. So Nanny gets Agnes, who gets so little time in this story. Yeah, she's a walk-on. Yeah, I mean, at least she gets a couple of lines of dialogue, but that's about all that goes on there. And a whole lot of cruel jokes. Mm. Did it with it? Oh, yes. No, that's right. Because one of the other witches doesn't know who she is and describes her as like a bowling ball or something. What does she she say? I can't remember. It's just repeated. Every time they talk about Agnes, except for when she helps Granny home, it is just a bunch of cruel, fat jokes. Yeah, like he's worse than in previous books, I'd argue. And this is uh, between Masquerade and Carpe Jugulum, so it's kind of like prime fat joke time for Pratchett, unfortunately. So it's not a surprise, but it is a disappointment. 
Yeah, yeah. So there's that damning with faint praise that she gets. There's something Nanny says, oh, she's always been blessed with a blessed with a commanding voice or something like that. Yeah, like they. I mean, they're not, they're good about her voice. Like she's got a great voice for cursing, which you know, obviously she does. She's got a great voice for everything. But yeah, that was a bit disappointing. I was a bit sad about that. I think any time we encounter that, and we said this in previous books, you know, it's it is this sort of bum note. Yeah, jars. He's famous for his humanism and for trying to mm. write as if everyone is there. And any time he's written something that, when we look at it now, we just see like, well, that's very fat shamey. Like that's just very. That's not mm. okay. And that this is a very racist caricature that you probably didn't realize when you were writing it is a very racist caricature, but that's what it is. And it just feels like it feels off. You would imagine if he's right, he's still writing now, if he's mm. still around and writing now, he wouldn't write like that anymore. And he, he does self-correct as he goes along. There are certain things yeah, that absolutely. come along later where that address certain issues. Like suddenly we have um, overtly queer characters popping up. We have a, proper mm. looks at not just the this kind of fairly arm's length look of the way women are treated that you get in equal rights this kind of basic entry level of well everyone should be treated the same by the time you get to monstrous regiment and things like that um yeah he starts being very profound about race and class and gender yeah i, I think he makes up for it i think he rises as society he rises with society a little bit as these things become more accepted he folds that worldview in uh, yeah, I mean, that, it, that's to, that's to his credit. But you're right; there are things that jar, and they you're right. A bum note is a good way of saying it. Fortunately, they're yeah. very few and far between. They are, they are, and even like I mean, we recently did all three of the Johnny Maxwell books, and even mm. by the end of those, mm. you could see a real difference in some of the things and the ways he was writing about them. Although even then, at that time, like you read some of the interviews, and I'm sure you would have read lots of these, Mark. But at the time, he was often talking about what we would now see as pushing back against pc culture and saying yeah. like, well you should be able to say whatever you want and i think he did feel that and he because he felt like there were some things people didn't want you to write about that you should write about for kids mm. but the way he was talking about it i think could be mistaken for modern day no i can say these racist horrible things if i yeah. want like, you can't stop me which is not I, I think when you look at his writing you see that's not his point there's always but, a purpose yeah he drops yeah. the n-word in johnny and the bomb yeah which apparently was a huge ding dong with his editor, and actually he it was an argument yeah. he didn't expect to win. He he was expecting that to to, to horse trade that to sneak some other stuff in. Like mm. he there's no there's an interview he did he did where he mentions it before the book comes out, and he says like yeah I I had an argument with my editor about using the n word in a children's book, and I so say he said except he says it he actually does say it in the in the interview because 1995 or whenever it was, um mm. but. You know, it's just disappointing, but presumably he wouldn't do that now. You'd think, you'd hope. But um, he didn't expect to get that through. And actually, I think when he mm. deploys that word in that book, it's very effective because yeah. he, you know, he puts it in the in the mouth of the right character. It is a bomb it, that detonates, that brings you up short and you go, oh, mm. and it feels uncomfortable because it's meant to. But he didn't even expect that word to get in. He thought his, he was obviously able to, to win that argument, but he was going to use it as a bartering tool to get some other stuff through that he didn't think he'd be able to. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. It's like chucking in a typo so that you don't get structural edits. <laughs> yeah, distract the editor as much as possible. It's a good tactic. Give him something to find. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't do that. <laughs> no. um, the other thing that you don't do is remove Granny Weatherwax from anywhere. But that is what they do. Uh, Nanny and Agnes take her back to her cottage. Um, Where this her is Agnes's... house is very messy. Yes. So. Yes, that's right. Uh, the terrible table. And then they sort of say, oh, we won't go back to the thing. But Granny sort of says, no, you should go back to the trial. 
and they do. And when they go back to the trial without her, no one has been able to pull off their tricks because the trial is made up of various different things that they do. And they, they sort of mention the other ones in passing. There's the cursing to open it up. There's the bonfire at the end. There's one or two other things that I've forgotten what there's, they are. There's a really singing frog. There's a singing frog. Well, the singing <laughs> frog is someone's trick, right? Because this yeah, is the final, beautifully. final part of the trial is, you know, you do your your trick that you've been working on, which is, you know, some great piece of actual magical witchcraft. But in the style it feels of, like a school talent show, though. It does. It does, I, right? I also think that the frog thing is a Kermit reference because Nanny mentions in passing, like she talks about the singing frog a little bit. And then right at the end, she mentions that it has a banjo. Which is such a lovely joke. Oh um, yeah. Sorry. So it's a little a little Kermit the Frog reference there, I think. Yeah. I yeah, I, I it was w- doing badly, it's whistling. When it initially came up, I thought it was a reference to that old Warner Brothers cartoon about the frog that can sing, but it never sings when anyone else is around except the guy who's <laughs> discovered it and he can't get anyone to make money on it. Well maybe you're both right. Maybe I- you've just made a rainbow connection. <laughs> lovely work. <laughs> Excellent work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, but should we rock it along to the end? Because, like, um, yeah. basically what happens with Granny is she doesn't want to win, but she looks like she's going to by default almost, even though everyone, because everyone's performing so badly, she was relying on the frog to beat her. And that sort of turns out to be the tactic. Um, yeah, because even Nanny can't, she tries to do her man of straw trick, which is, like, conjure up a bit of wind and make a little man out of straw, make him walk. Which is vaguely suggestive. She can make him do something rude. Yeah, yeah. yeah, probably quite, yes, suggestive, absolutely. But she can't concentrate on it. All she can see is Granny's face worried about what's going on there. And she's surprised. I mean, this is another point where I think I would not have thought Nanny would be taken in by what Mm. Granny was doing. And I think she didn't think she would be taken in. And then, you know, she's surprised that she can't concentrate either and no one can do it. And then just as sort of everyone, the tension is at the crisis point granny appears uh and so i just thought i'd see what was gonna happen and mrs earwig is not she's had enough she's like what have you done you've cursed us all you're using your headology on us using affluence yeah you put an affluence on us and and grace i I would never do how could i get past all these lucky charms which is a reference to the (laughs) the dwarf selling the lucky horseshoes which i assumed are just magnetic um but who knows (laughs) Uh, well, they're lucky for him, as he says. Yeah, that's such he's getting a getting two dollars each for them. Such a great line. I love that. And they have the confrontation. It's so simple, but it's so great. Yeah, and she's. I was shocked when she slapped her, but yeah, mm, yeah. It really, it's a really shocking moment. And Granny's response is is um, is excellent because she doesn't do anything. Like yeah. she, like, she doesn't retaliate. She doesn't respond. She doesn't in any way uh, like do anything. And I think she knows that having slapped Granny Weatherwax is punishment enough. Like that that was Lettuce Earwig losing control. And she will regret having lost her control. And that it will be a far more effective punishment than anything else. She's been hoisted on her own petard basically. Exactly, yeah. 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 So she's led away, basically, and uh, Granny comes a bit back to herself, although she's still being a bit faux nice. Uh, and says, "Well, let's not let that spoil everything. Let's. We should still have a bonfire." And um, then throws a fireball during the only bit of effective ma- magic in the entire event. Which is yeah. is that her trick all along? Like, was that what she'd planned? Like, even before all Ooh, of the politics had come maybe. in. Like, I was wondering if that was like her planned trick anyway that she'd been working on. It feels a bit entry level though. It's like throwing fireballs. Although it's wizard magic, isn't it? It's something which she wouldn't never you do. Taps into history. Yeah, she yeah. she yeah. never 
Granny never does that sort of thing unless she has to or unless she's annoyed. There's that bit in Witch in Witches Abroad where she where she glares at a fire until it bursts into flames. But yeah. yeah, I like the fact that she's she literally becomes the the image of the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz, throwing the fireball at the Scarecrow. It's exactly that image. Yeah, that actress got very injured doing that. Yeah. Oh really? <laughs> Yeah. What yeah. Like it like on burned fire. her. Oh wow! Yeah, in all that make it was, and yeah, they we'll, had to, put it in the show notes. It's a really oh, horrible, sounds... really horrible thing where she's got a burn covered in green paint. It's awful. Oh, nasty! Uh, but then we get That's to the yeah, the, the last bit where Nanny basically <laughs> visits Granny to go. I know what you did, <laughs> basically, and lets Granny sort of talk about it. But they don't. Again, you know, it's one of those great Granny Nanny conversations where they don't quite come out and say it. You know, but they don't have to, mm. uh, either for themselves or for us. Like we know what happened, and yeah, I don't know. I, I love, I love this bit. And then um, the onions, particularly, yeah, particularly the, the 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 onions where we kind of end <laughs> where we began with someone getting a new variety of fruit or vegetable named after them, <laughs> and it's onions. And there's that great again, you know, just like the apple had the perfect description uh, for. Uh, uh, Nanny Og, the, the onion has a perfect description for Granny Weatherwax. She says, oh, very useful vegetable, the onion. Firm, sharp. <laughs> like, yeah, good for the system. Keeps well, adds flavor, hot and spicy. <laughs> and then they go nice off with track cheese. A bit. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Nice with cheese. But the, the one that's unspoken is that it's many layered. That's the mm-hmm. that's the thing they don't say, but is completely true. Is it's a um, uh, an onion has many levels, and you keep you keep taking the layers out, and there's still more layers, which is very yeah. great, like a parfait. <laughs> yeah, so good, so good. It's very satisfying. So, shall we go straight into questions? Because I know we've sort of brought up our favorite quotes as we've gone along. Sure. Yeah. All right. So this one comes from Sven via Discord. Okay, since this story is about naming fruits. If an apple was named after you, what would it taste and look like? And as a bonus question, what is your favorite curse? Oh, this is a good question. Because I do love apples. And my favorite apple is the Granny Smith. I love it because it's Same. so sour. So I, I would hope that it would be like a Granny Smith. I want it to be a bit tart, a bit unexpected. Um, but it's supposed to be your personality, not what you want to eat. Yeah, but I, I, my personality, I guess... It would have to be... Well, you could be a bit tart and unexpected. What do you mean? <laughs> just, just what you said. I'm just saying your answer back to you. No. Uh, this is, I mean, it's tricky. I think I would be dependable, but not particularly outstanding eating apple. But if you give it a bit of time and turn it into cider, it's pretty great. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the kind of apple I would like named after me, I think. One that needs fermenting. Mm. Yeah, one that needs a bit of time to get to its best. That's something that's made of mostly apples. Yeah, mostly apples, exactly. <laughs> Much in this story, when Nanny Hong says, I'm bringing some bottles along, and they're like, oh, did you make some wine? It's a bit like wine, yes. <laughs> that was great. Oh, we didn't even mention the bit. This, you just made me think of this after Nanny's left and has left the bag of apples with Granny. Granny just sort of sits there. Oh, they, and yes. the apples just go moldy and some worms crawl out. It's just like instantly. Oh, I really so love those little points where you see how powerful Granny Weatherwax is, but in a way that she never really lets on. That she can actually yeah. do extraordinary things. She has massive. She has incredible power. But because witchcraft is about not using magic, 
and so is wizardry yes. in a way actually in, in in this world in general using magic is about not using magic but especially true of witchcraft but every once in a while she let like it leaks out something happens and i don't i i i like the implication for me anyway that that um that doesn't happen on purpose that yeah. that's a reflection of mm. her of how she's feeling yeah mm. but what about what about your apples what would your apples be like slot wine a little bit towards pears um, i was thinking this that. is really yeah oh we, if we both do it then that's that's all right but um there's this really good one like a nashi pear which is good during summer but it's it's okay like at room temperature but it's best when it's put in the fridge so yeah. like better under certain conditions <laughs> see i was thinking i'd be more of a that. pear because usually when a pear is in the fruit bowl you have no idea what that pear is going to be like and I think that's kind of like me, is that you might pick it up and it's horribly cut hard and uh, like chewing wood and basically unpalatable. And you go, yes. oh, I've got to it too soon. It's too soon. Or you, you can like bite straight through it. And it's this kind of bag of glorious juice. And it's incredibly satisfying and lovely. Or it can be a slightly mushy, mouldering mess, depending on its day. And you can never quite tell until you poke it. Also, it's... um. <laughs> <laughs> also it's got an unappealingly fat bum and that's <laughs> oh, oh, all rings come true. on now don't don't no. agnes knit yourself don't <laughs> come on don't let's not let's say positive things positive <laughs> but i like that you don't know what you're gonna be like until you get there what about curses though what um is it the curse words or like curses we'd put on people well i think i mean the implication is that they used to curse a person so i think it would be a magical curse but because it's 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 like done on you know it's like it's like when they change someone's shape like they talk about Pratchett always talks about how the the trick to that is convincing somebody that they are the other thing and that mm. kind of their their own morphological field does the work it's implied um, it's, it's explicit in the book actually in the story isn't it there's a difference between yeah. cursing and cussing mm. yeah 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 so you know just swearing at someone but you know in, in the hands of a witch like cussing is also kind of dangerous mm. um as nanny finds out she actually sets some grass on fire in this story when she swears so i don't know what kind of curse would you lay on someone it would depend on what they did but i think the best curse is the one that would be drawn from what they think would be the worst thing to happen so if you could get the curse to be self-inflicted they're like oh no what if it's this and then it is that it's like if you personally were scared of bats or like if you thought the worst thing that could happen to you was that your shoes always felt like they were full of mud then the curse is that whatever you think is bad is happening for 24 hours this is the room however long you deserve and that's how you end up being attacked on top of a skyscraper by a gigantic marshmallow man Yes. <laughs> yes. But this is this is the room 101 curse though, isn't it? It's like whatever the worst thing is is going to be in there. But yes, also just think of something innocuous. It'll be fine. <laughs> I quite like the granny weatherax idea of curses, the where there isn't really one but you spend your entire life waiting for it to happen even if it never does. You're constantly waiting for the, you know, the other shoe to drop, for the thing to happen. You're, you know, that, like it's definitely going to happen at some point, and you spend your entire life in fear, and then maybe you live your life yeah. better because of it. I like that. It just it actually reminds me of the fact that when I was in high school, I never used to swear, and I, that became a deliberate thing after a while because what would happen is, if I needed to tell someone that I was really angry, all I had to do was just say one swear. And people were like, oh, shit, Ben's really angry. 
And it, ben, are you really angry right now? It, yes. No, I'm not. No. Um, I swear <laughs> a lot you more just now. Swore. Uh, well, now I swear a lot. Uh, not on this podcast, but I do in real life. I enjoy it. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I remember there was one time we were rehearsing for a play. Someone said they didn't want to rehearse. I'm like, it opens in a week. And they're like, oh, I just don't feel like it. And I just went, oh. And as I was walking away, I just went, oh. And, uh, and they went like, oh man, he's, he, this is really important. We better do it. We'll go to the, and it was like, it was Granny Weatherwax headology. I didn't, hadn't even read the books at that stage, I don't <laughs> think, but it was, um, oh, maybe I'd started reading them. So maybe she was my inspiration. I don't know. Anyway, but that's, that's probably my curse. Uh, it's just the right word at the right time. There you go. Uh, speaking of the right word at the right time, this one's from Molokov via Discord. What's your favorite word that has more than one meaning in different contexts, such as nice? So Molokov is quite fond of peculiar, is is the example. I'm going to say mine. Uh, it's fuck. Like that's kind of. <laughs> oh, it's going to be mine. But you can also have it. In that that's case, right. can there's I, a lot of meanings. Can I have bugger instead then? Mm. <laughs> yes. Yes, that does have a lot of good meanings. It's true. I am, fo- I am fond of a good bugger. Uh, I oh, now I've got to think of one. Look, I think quite is a good one. Quite can be so well deployed. You know, quite and nice. It, it, yeah, mm. yeah. Quite or, good. or someone says something and you just say, quite. And it's like, hmm, is that good or bad? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think I'll go with quite. I love the way there's really a difference. Really is another good one. Between, that is really quite good. And yeah, it's quite good. Yeah. <laughs> Even in yeah. the same context, it can mean opposite things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, this one's from Belle via Discord. What would your trick at the witch trials be? Not to be Granny Weatherwax, of course, but to possibly come second. Oh, like a magical witchy trick. Um, I th- I actually did. I thought about this one a bit, and I I feel like it would be getting multiple animals to do the same thing at the same time, and not even anything necessarily non-animal like, like just holding your arms out like a scarecrow, and suddenly all of these crows land on you or something like that, <laughs> and everyone's like, "What?" Like, wow, just. Yeah, I think it would be something innocuous but really creepy like that just because it would be fun. I thought the question would be like, what is it you could literally do in real life? And I'm oh. my headcanon of you now is that you can do that. <laughs> uh, don't yeah. tell anyone. <laughs> I was going to say something that I'd literally do because I, I have crap party tricks that I've done. Oh, yeah. um, and so I guess I'd do a witchy version of my crap party trick, which is that I can put a bunch of coins on my elbow and catch them in my hand. Like by flicking oh, my hand yeah. forward and catch them all. That's a good, good party piece. Uh, yeah, it's it's great when it works, but um, <laughs> when you do it five times in a row, then you turn to your friend in the pub and go, hey, look at what I can do. And um, you get a bunch of 20 cent coins, you flip them into his beer. <laughs> Less good party trick. Better than flipping them into his face. But um, I guess like the witchy version would be I'd just make my hands bigger and bigger, which would like be freaky. <laughs> but yeah, so you can just catch as many as you want. All right, all right, Ms. Marvel. Um, <laughs> that's it. I could be married to Yon Grafford. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. I uh, well. I, now you want me want to think of something because all I thought was I just I just changed mine a little bit so I don't want it to be crows. I want it to be Australian magpies because that's Talk kind of awesome it. and really frightening at the same time. But yeah, I don't I don't know what else. Mark, what, what would you do? I mean, is knowing a lot about Terry Pratchett a party piece? <laughs> I think <laughs> because if you were at a Discworld witch trial, it would be, because you would know yeah, about the be- creator of the universe. Because I I know a lot about Terry Pratchett now. 
um I, it's definitely trivia based my um i do a thing in my stand-up actually which is a good party piece where i kind of ask people what their favorite music is and then i tell them what that means for their sex life and i illustrate their favorite their i, I can say everything they need to know about their sex life based on their favorite kind of music which so i'd probably do that which when nanny og just pulls out the hedgehog song would be one i couldn't answer <laughs> <laughs> We also got some good comments about the book and also in response to some other people's questions. So from Shut Up Banks. Shut Up Banks' trick would be handwriting reading um, for extra points, reading it upside down, um, which I thought was a very good one. And, I, you know, that's actually like something that I've I've been able to do and felt it's like that song, Very very Mild Superpowers, you know, yeah, by that comedian. I do know. So that's one of my very mild superpowers. Um, I've got I've got one actually now if you want things you can really do mine would be mm. someone could play me a really annoying song that gets stuck in your head and not get it stuck in my head that is a that is not very mild that is a superpower <laughs> <laughs> thank you um yeah I'm like the opposite like I I get every song stuck in my head all the same time no um it's just it's like a sponge for songs so yeah I can't even imagine living that life oh. And for the last one, this one's from Elaine Rose, mine, via Facebook. Do you think Granny Weatherwax could have ever lost the trials and how would she ever have coped if she did? I'm going to answer it quite briefly. Yes, in extreme circumstances and badly. So, <laughs> I think um, anyone that could beat Granny Weatherwax would be somebody that she would have so much respect for that she wouldn't take it badly because it wouldn't seem like a natural thing to have happened. Although there is something about with her about being, you know, the old gunslinger always looking for this. But it's in the story, isn't it? They're always looking for the young pretender to turn up. But I think when it genuinely happens, it would be met with mutual respect. Yeah. Because she talks about, you know, the fact that everyone thinks she's going to win. And she says, well, that's what I think when I go in. I think yeah, I'm going to win. And if they don't go in thinking or knowing that I'm going to win, well, then, of course, they're not going to win. Like, they should change. So I think if it did happen... If that's why it happened, if someone was really like better than her, she'd be all right with it. If it was because, you know, Mrs. Earwig had like decided to judge it unfairly or something, there would be hell to pay. <laughs> like, that's what I was imagining. Or because yeah. Nanny Og had distracted a child with a bag of sweets, which is literally <laughs> what happens in Lords and Ladies. Yes, mm. yes, absolutely. But I actually think, you know, that she wouldn't ever lose because I think mm. the year that she thought she wouldn't win she'd just not go and probably yeah. you know that's kind of the year of without wanting to get into any spoilers but i think you know the year of the final Discworld book is probably the year she wouldn't have gone well this whole question of and the witch trials comes up comes up in hatful of sky and it sort of hmm. kind of deals with a lot of this so it's worth throwing forward to that because i think like if you read this and then read carpe juggling and then read hatful of sky the three kind of thematically run together yeah cool uh, we got another great comment. Um, this one is from Steve Lay via Twitter, who um, points out that the Wikipedia entry for this story states that the story established a basis for various elements of the novel A Hatful of Sky, but is not required to understand that novel. Um, Steve adds, true, but you'll appreciate the, the book a lot more if you've read, read this short story. So, yeah. um, I'm looking forward to discussing it maybe in the context, like when we get to that. Yeah, me too, because I haven't read A Hatful of Sky, so uh, I'm very excited about it now. It's also worth mentioning that there's a whole bit, a whole longer passage that was cut out of this story, which is uh, included in A Blink of the Screen, the anthology, which was kind of repurposed and used as a scene in Carpe Jugulum. And it's the one where Granny packs up her house and leaves 
and then goes to the bit of gnarly ground. And um, I think it also includes the bit where Nanny comes and, and sees her cottage and realizes that she's left. And it's given quite a different spin because it happens for different reasons in the other book, although not entirely different reasons, I suppose. So that's fascinating because I read that in the introduction and I didn't look up what it was because I tried to guess what, what bit of the book oh, would be. Yeah. And I was like, I wonder if it's because that's where she humps off because she's got a bit of a sense of self-attack. And I was like, I wonder. So I'm feeling very validated by that. Well done, Liz. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. Even though I, I um was wrong in my theory about the short story, I was able to guess where the missing thousand words went. So that's something. <laughs> it is very long for a short story. I But I... Yeah, it's well worth your time to track down. But look, that that kind of brings us to the end of our discussion of this great short story. Mark, thank you so much for joining us from the other side of the world. Thanks for having me. It's This is a great way to start my day. I'm very happy to be awake. <laughs> also, I'm going to be a lot more awake for work than I usually am. I, because I've not wo- I've not woken up at seven fifty five and logged on at eight am. I've uh, I've actually had two hours to get my brain into gear and and working. So I'm going to be a lot more effective as an employee today. Oh, fantastic! It's quite the commute. <laughs> now we've already established that your website is askmeaboutterrypratchett.com. At least if you want to find out about the book, The Magic of Terry Pratchett. If people want to find out more about the other things that you do, where can they find you online? Twitter is your best bet. I literally live on Twitter. I mean, I, I actually work for Twitter. That's So I, I live inside Twitter pretty much all the time. Um, so yeah, I'm at 20th century mark 20th, the word century, and mark M-A-R-C. And that's where you can generally find me. Um, I'm, I'm in a band called The Men That Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing, which uh, I'd also, if you like Pratchett, you'll pretty much like my band. We we're, we're, It's essentially... It's very, very Discworldy in in term in the theme and the content, so I would recommend checking that out. But yeah, if, if you find me on Twitter, I I tweet about everything I do, and I tweet about my stand up and the band and upcoming books, of which there are a few happening now. So yeah, yeah. that's all. Find me on Twitter. Bother me. <laughs> Is there anything coming up for you that you can mention or want to mention? Uh, yeah, I've got two books I'm working on at the moment. I'm editing a book about the Manic Street Preachers, the band. Huh. Uh, to uh, one of my favourite bands where I'm finding other writers to write a chapter on each of their albums and I'm putting it all together and I'll write a chapter myself uh, and then I'm also writing a book about the relationship between David Bowie and Mark Bolan and yeah. the sort of 60s music and culture and glam rock uh, which sounds very far away from Pratchett but actually there are some crossovers like they were born, they were all born the same year so huh. it's an interesting you can actually see some crossovers in growing up working class in post-war Britain uh, as a young man, which is fairly interesting. Although they, obviously they, their, their flights of fancy go off in very different directions. But yeah, yeah that's uh, that's my kind of main big project. And that's the next book that's uh, that's coming. I, I write about music mostly. Yeah. Uh, there right. will be more. I do a, um, a newsletter once a month that I call Glom of Knit. Uh, so if you can sign up if you go to tinyletter.com forward slash 20th century mark uh you can sign up for the glom of knit newsletter and i i throw in short stories i've written and bits of information and usually some terry pratchett stuff in there in there as well so yeah great all right Thanks thank you so much once again and that brings us to the end of the episode thank you so much for listening this is our first regular main monthly episode where we've done a short story instead of a book and we're thinking we might bring this in as a regular thing maybe every four or six months just to give ourselves and all of you listening a bit of time to catch up with the novels that we are normally discussing because reading a novel a month is not always an easy thing to do particularly 
right now in as I gesture wildly around all of this. <laughs> so we hope that it's been a nice little diversion for you and that you check out Mark's work. And we'd also just like to say a big thank you to all of you who've chosen to support the podcast, uh, whether that's through a monthly subscription or a one-off donation, which we've had a few of recently. So thank you very much to those of you who've done that. Or if it's even just telling other people, it all helps us because we don't do this just for ourselves. We do it so that people will listen and enjoy it. And remember, it does help us if you give us a review or a rating on your podcast directory of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser. There's lots of them. Uh, we won't tell you which one. That's a matter for you. We will be back next month and we'll be discussing the elephant in the room, Liz. Uh, well, how many are there? Oh, yeah. Uh, one, two, three. Oh, yeah, right. It's the fifth elephant. So next one, we'll be going back to the Discworld to read The Fifth Elephant, the next watch novel off the ranks with returning guest Richard McKenzie, who was our guest way back in episode five when we discussed pyramids. So it'll be wonderful to have him back. But before we meet again, ask yourself, are you an apple or an onion? You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Mark Burrows. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat39. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.